For people that love science, this is Equinox, where we're striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode six, part two of our discussion about the man, the myth, and the legend, or, you know, how we're taking it apart, Charles Darwin. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by a doctor of sciences, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. Last time we were talking about Charles Darwin and the coronavirus made it to the United States. And since then, a lot has happened. A whole lot's happened. It's, it's amazing how much history happens in just one week. Yeah. We are living through a very historical time. Yeah, this is something the history books will write about for a long time in the future. I was thinking about that uh, the other day with Donald Trump, that his presidency is not going to be remembered for a lot of other things that he has already done. What they're going to remember is what he did because of something like the situation we're in. And that goes for uh, anyone else that's famous. I was uh, thinking that Trump is the only president in recent presidencies who did not get us into a war. Yeah, but then he got this instead. But then he got this instead, yeah. <sighs> so uh, I thought that I would tell you what is going on for work. It's a little bit interesting because Rob and I are about to be on vacations. <laughs> <laughs> so for the ministry, a lot of our regular activities are ministry uh, where we are going to speak at conferences. We have resource tables at convention halls and sometimes the occasional uh, field work or Rob is often for uh, interviews and documentaries and other people's films or broadcast television and radio. Yeah. Now, because uh, a lot of that has been canceled, it is getting rescheduled for later in the year. So our ministry is anticipating a pretty significant influx of more events work in the fall and beyond. So they need everybody's hands on deck when the time comes. And for now, we need to be taking some vacations. Yeah, so enforce vacations, but it's all for the survival of this awesome ministry that we work for. In fact, I can't believe that I'm allowed to work for CMI. I love my job. I love the people I work with. I love what we do. I can't believe I get to vacation for CMI. <laughs> <laughs> now, I miss the traveling. I'm, I'm usually traveling every other weekend all year long. And this is very strange to not be driving to an airport. And you've done that for 15 years? Yeah, just about. So you're going to be on a pretty significant hiatus. Yeah. Living here in Georgia, staying at home. And you're going to be doing what for your vacation in a week? Uh, probably working. Yeah. Because I can't, I'll be bored stiff if I'm just not doing anything, but I'll, I'll find some projects to do. I'll work on my biblical genetics podcast and my, uh, I pictured you like, show. you know, getting into painting and fine crafts and sculpture and designing some DNA ladders. Well, you know that I do a lot of woodworking. Really? Yeah. Like, you know, you have like a woodworking shop to build some furniture. Well, I have built a table, an oak table that's in my, in my kitchen. And Impressed. I actually made a floor in my old house. I cut down a 90 foot tall oak tree that was six feet in diameter. I remember that now. I remember you mill. showing me the floor. It was not bad. Yeah. I love that floor, but yeah, that's in the old house. And you know, I, had, I got rid of my sawmill a couple years ago. It was, um, it was like losing a dog. That's how I Aww. felt. It's like, Oh, my sawmill. No. <laughs> <laughs> now that is just the one that cuts the boards just right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I have other equipment to, uh, to shape it, flatten it, edge it and things like that. But I'm not very good. And I, I tend to do things that are big and blocky, not fine details, but still, I love working with wood. It's just, it's, it's a nice hobby. So I'll yeah. probably be doing that some, something on that nature next week too. That sounds really nice. 
I'm going to be spending more time with the family. I get to have the children for several days and I will be going out in nature. We're going to play some games, go outdoors. I, I figure on visiting some of the state parks, uh, seeing some of the battlefields. Yeah, uh, you're talking about one very close to here. Yes, uh, Pickett's Mill is very close to home. We actually live in a really cool place, uh, listeners. Historical area. Historical yeah. area. We live right on the edge of a lot of famous Civil War battlefields during the Battle for Atlanta. In fact, uh, the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain, the uh, western end of that, was famous church not too far from here. New Hope. New Hope, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's like yeah, lost mountain. You're the one who told me. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so New Hope Church is not far from here. There's a bunch of historical markers there, but you can still see the ditches from the trenches. Oh, wow. The soldier is it's half filled in with grass and dirt since then, but they're still there. You can still see the row of trenches from that battle. Just a very interesting place. And a lot of, lot of people who are not on federal property um, doing things like uh, metal detecting and things like that, they find all sorts of really cool stuff. One of my friends, actually a pastor nearby, said he was on some private land and he found a whole bunch of bullets that had been laid out in a row. Oh. He said, this was a sniper's nest. Yeah. And he had set out his cartridges. Unbelievable. And then he probably got killed or he ran away or something. And the cartridges had been sitting there since 1865, I guess. Wow. I know that on um, some of the trail for the Kennesaw Mountain, they have historical pictures of the spot. You can see what it looked like then and what it looks like now. And uh, nature has changed. The, the trees are bigger and things yeah. like that. But a lot of them that were fully grown are the same trees that were there then. It's, it's so amazing to stand right beside the trench and see basically 85% of the same picture that they would have then. I love history. Mm. I know your wife loves history. Yes, she's participated in several Civil War reenactments out in the uh, the state of Oregon, where she's from. I know not a lot of history there for the yeah, Civil yeah, War. The Civil War. I can reenact <laughs> anything in Oregon. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> and she, now she's a Southern lady, and mm -hmm. she's really enjoying the state parks and the battlefields. Cool. We'll probably do that. Uh, the children love the video game Stardew Valley, and I'm enjoying it too. Yeah, we can't get enough of the farming, and there's a little bit of science in that. If you can call it pseudoscience, uh, it's a fun game. And uh, I fully endorse it if your kids like farming. Cool. So uh, let's go ahead and get to today's topic. All right. Today's topic, Charles Darwin, part two. Who's Charles Darwin? No, I'm kidding. Well, last week we spent an entire hour talking about Darwin and we basically covered his biography, who he was as a person, where he came from, how he ended up, you know, a lot of things he wrote, a lot of things he said. Yeah, the times, a lot of the worldview that was common in academia and the influence or the lack thereof he had from going through seminary and then his voyage. seminary Yeah. And then the people that he made friends with, the five years of the Beagle voyage. And something that you pointed out, Rob, I wanted to go back to, we'll get to it in a minute. Okay. But you wanted to pick up again with the origin of species. Yeah. And with the, the time of his death, that is right where we left off. So if you'll remember last time, I said that he died. He thought of evolution while on the Galapagos Islands. It's simply not true, and he wrote it. And join us next time to find out when he died. No, I'm kidding. I'll tell you now. He died April 1882. Okay, so he's, yeah, 10 years, 11 years before he died. So you wanted to continue discussing the origin of species. 
And something that I think is really important to understand that uh, has been on your mind as well has been how he wasn't thinking about evolution that we are aware of during the voyage of the Beagle. And he wasn't working on the book. That is so different from what I think everybody would take for granted. Yeah, he went around the world on the HMS Beagle starting 1831 through 1836 when he was fresh out of college. But he didn't write The Origin of Species until 1859. 36, 46, 56, that's 23 years later. That's a long time. Now, he'd been working on these ideas, not in public. He's not writing about them um, you know, for, for public consumption, but he's got a set of notebooks that he's been struggling with and wrestling with for a very long time. In fact, in one of those, re- uh, those notebooks, he has a famous picture. He writes the words, I think, and then he writes a branching tree. It's a, the first depiction of a you know, so-called tree of life that, that anyone's aware of. So clearly he was thinking about these things, but not in public. When you say the tree of life, some of the audience will understand the biblical uh, book of Genesis, ah, tree yes. of life. Oh, good point, good point. So what is different about this one? The, the evolutionary tree of life starts with bacteria. So it's then, more of a family tree going back to the original form Yeah, back to the, the beginning life. of life sort of thing. Yeah. Each branch is one of the major groups of animals or plants or bacteria or something like that that are alive today. See, I wouldn't have even thought to call it the tree of life. I would have said it was like the tree of species or interesting. The, the tree of um, evolution. Oh, know? very interesting. I, you know what's really weird? I had never considered that until this second. Because it's like they hijacked a biblical term. Yeah. And used it to basically supplant. That's the not the only time they've done account. that. And we had you know, Y chromosome Adam in yeah. genetics and mitochondrial Eve in genetics. First time I heard white chromosome Adam, I, I heard it. So I wasn't reading it. And my brain went to A T O M. And then when I found out it was A D A M, I was like, oh, really? I see what you did there. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, but the uh, geneticists who named him Y chromosome Adam were biblically ignorant because our Y chromosome ancestors, Noah, not Adam. Oh, very good point. That could be another talk some other day. So you could help them rename that to the white chromosome Noah. Well, I've written about it. If anyone picks up on it, maybe they'll notice, but I don't I don't think they're going to pay attention. So we are shaking up the tree of life. Yes, we are. Mm. Um, okay, let me ask you a question. What is a species? In my layman's terms and past understanding, I would have said that it was something like an individual type of animal. So we got dogs and a Dalmatian and a Collie and a Labrador are all that dog species. Okay. But I would have also understood it from technical readings, following up with an article in a journal of science or something. A scientist would have gone so hyper-specific as to call the Labrador a species and the Collie a species. And I would have said, huh, okay, I guess in, you know, if you were to get really meta, well, on me and get purely technical, yes, you could say that the cardinal is a species and the blue jay is another species. And Even if, if they can interbreed, but <clears throat> we don't talk about that yet. Mm. And th- so then my mind builds up this generalized understanding that there are people who talk about even the human species. And that's when it gets into a lot of gray territories and it feels like general generalities are applied a lot of the time. And uh, like one of the strangest things 
not being a student of sciences, but then learning about them is how genes change your physical features and characteristics like uh, a couple having a white girl and a black girl twins. Which has happened, and we have that on creation.com all documented. Right. It sounds like, that doesn't even sound like science fiction. It sounds like a child's storybook. Let's imagine, y'all, a silly fantasy where, <laughs> one you know. One sister is white and one sister is African-American looking. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's actually happened. And so it's so jarring, given what we think we know about species and races and kinds but then going back to dogs, we'll have to talk about genetic breakdowns another day because I know that that's why a lot of the dog breeds have a lot of physical problems. So I just let you talk about five minutes. Yeah. And I ask you a simple question. I'm just rattling off everything that I think I know. But I did that on purpose to let you go and see how long you would talk because that's exactly what Darwin did. Darwin went on for page after page after page after page and never defined what a species was. And it's infuriating. It's in his talk. The, the, the title, title of the book, The Origin of Species. Hey, Darwin, what's a species? <laughs> okay. Infuriating. But he had this idea, and you have to dig really hard, that... Was this variety, in the letters that you talked about before he had... No, in, no, in, in the book itself, in The Origin of Species. Oh. There's an idea that you could have a, a race or a variety. Like, you know, you know those cows are like Oreo cookies? Yeah. They're black on both ends <laughs> yeah. and white in the middle. Yeah, I just think of them as dairy cows. Oh, okay. But then there's other types of cows. Like you had that, that reddish long haired cows. Yeah, the Chick-fil-A cow with the spots. Beef but the reddish long haired cow from the Scottish Highlands. Mm. These yes. are varieties of cow. His idea, in essence, was that varieties developed into species. Given enough isolation and enough time, enough specialization, they could breed and see essentially. For someone who's like a pigeon breeder, like Charles Darwin was, he, he, oh yes, he, he bred all different types of pigeons. Something that is a species is something that breeds true to type back in his day. So if it consistently made the same thing, you call that a species. Okay, so pigeons. Pigeons, species. But how would you get a pigeon flock to always produce pigeons that look almost identical? You keep on rebreeding them with the same... Boom family of pigeons you inbreed them so they lose genetic diversity yes so by losing information they start breeding true to type that's how we wound up with the dog breeds that's right but this is backwards for darwin darwin was actually arguing in the opposite direction that his theory was pointing so he the, is doing one thing with pigeons and he's writing another thing in his book to get a so-called species something that breeds true to type you have to remove all the genetic variation yeah but that would preclude it from changing anymore. It would be stuck. It would be literally pigeonholed. <laughs> Is that where the term came from? No, no, but I, I, like, I like saying that. That's perfect. <laughs> what, what natural selection does is it culls and culls and culls and it, it removes diversity and it gets something finer and finer and finer. So you can say, okay, this is exactly what it looks like now. And you never, you know, you never had a flock of sheep that comes up with a black sheep. They're all white. All the black genes are gone. They've been pigeonholed. And you know what? If, if this is a natural selection thing, like these sheep were living in the Arctic and they needed a white fur. And what if the environment changes and it warms up again? They'll never have a black furred sheep and they're going to go extinct. Oh. They've been, su they've been reduced to such a small, you know, a small little peninsula of the, uh, or small little branch of the tree of life that they can't go back anymore. 
So help me understand how that's the opposite of what Darwin's doing. Well, Darwin needs infinite amount of change. He needs change to never stop. He needs species to be able to be infinitely variable. He needs them to change and change and change and change. All right. Now I get it. Yeah. So he's thinking naturally there's going to be a lot of changes if we allow nature to do to run itself. Yes. But, but we don't see that. We see white wolves. We see red foxes. We see in particular areas where that type and its genes were more commonplace. The reason red fox always produces red foxes and not gray foxes is because there are no gray fox genes in the red fox population and vice versa. I never hadn't thought about that. So we would call them different species. Even if red foxes and gray foxes can interbreed, one way to define species, Darwin's basic definition is if they breed true to type, we call it a different species. So he would have said that the red fox was a species, the gray fox was another. Yeah. And but I, then I, we know, like you just said, that they can interbreed because they're both fox kind. Well, all domestic dogs in the world are gray wolves genetically. We know it. I mean, you look at a, a dog genome, it's a wolf genome. Yeah. Clear that they're gray wolves, not red wolves. It's hard to believe wolves. we got poodles and chihuahuas out of wolves. That's, you know, it's funny. There's a, um, a, a movie uh, made about Charles Darwin and his life. And a couple famous actors, and it's not a really good movie. But in that movie, the family has a dog, and the dog is a golden retriever. And I slap my forehead because golden retrievers did not yet exist in Charles Darwin's day. <laughs> Was there another kind of retriever yet? I mean, oh, yeah, lots of retrievers, yeah. but the Goldie is yeah. a recent breed. <laughs> it's not 150 years old. Mm. And so, based on a true story, was, of course. Well, well, it was a nice looking dog, and it was it fit the. The, the movie well, but it was just historically This is inaccurate. the story about one man and one breed that didn't yet exist. <laughs> Point is, you can take a species like a wolf and morph it over time by pigeonholing different little populations. By uh, refusing to let them breed with something else, they will change and you get chihuahuas or Great Danes or gray wolves it, we could or call African that jackals. Accelerated controlled natural selection. Through artificial selection, you can get very rapid change. Yeah. Okay. Artificial selection. Yeah. Well, that's what Darwin, he used artificial selection as his example. He said, look what we can do with artificial selection. Oh, well, see, in nature. That doesn't work the same way. No, but but he put several things together. He, First, yeah, it, it does kind of, but not the same way. He assumed millions of years. So that's his starting point. And then he took Thomas Malthus, the famous guy who wrote that uh, we're all going to starve to death because we have too many babies and food production doesn't increase as fast as populations increase. Therefore, we're all going to die. Yeah. And he was totally wrong, by the way, because... Well, good to know. Well, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. Hey, there's a hungry mouth over there. He's going to give me money if I give him food. You know what? I'm going to figure out how to raise more food. And we have not gone through a massive starvation episode across the world. It's true. As far as humans are concerned. Yeah, there was Dutch potato famine. That was bad. And there's been, you know, famines in Ethiopia and India. And okay, we have famine sometimes, but that's not the same thing as we have too many people and we're all going to die. <laughs> yeah. And there are over 7 billion of us now and we're doing just fine. Yeah, it's incredible. So Darwin used what we can do in artificial selection as an example of what nature might be able to do. And what he said was this. He said, given millions of years and given natural variability and given Malthus's idea that species produce a lot more offspring they can possibly survive. This is what he said. Oh, well, that means that if any individual has a little bit of advantage over another individual, it might produce more offspring. And if it produces more offspring over time, its progeny 
will be uh, have a higher representation in the population than earlier. So now in today in genetic language, we would say the genes of that individual will increase over time and the genes of the individuals not as fit for that environment will decrease over time. What Darwin didn't realize is this, most variants don't affect reproductive output. The color of your eyes has nothing to do with how many children you have. <laughs> if whether or not you have attached or detached earlobe has nothing to do with how many children you have. In fact, those are variants we can see. Most variants are completely invisible. Oh, yeah. Totally and completely. So natural selection actually is blind to most of the change it needs to be able to do. It is just a, a covering the tip of the iceberg of the reality of the situation. It's a much more simple-minded theory than the reality of how complex human genes are. Yeah, he had a very, very oversimplified view of life. And again, he had no, no idea what genes were. No idea yeah, well, what no, DNA was. No one else did. It's not like somebody else had a more complex and reasoned theory at the time, right? True, but um, there was a very interesting paper written about 10 years ago. Uh, why didn't Darwin discover Mendel's laws? Fascinating question, because Mendel was a contemporary. Hmm. Mendel wrote his papers on genetics just a few years after Darwin's Origin of Species. In fact, he might have been writing to contradict Darwin. Ooh, interesting. Some people have lined up the arguments and say, wait a minute, point by point, Mendel's papers follow the Origin of Species. Whoa. Well, no wonder Mendel was pushed aside and not talked about for another 75 years. Oh, wow. Even though there were people called Mendelians, and we, we know these people existed. There was, you know, at least 100 references to Mendel's works before they were supposedly rediscovered. <laughs> yeah, rediscovered. Just, they just didn't know what to do with it because Darwin needed infinite, infinite variability. And Mendel said, no, 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 tall or short, wrinkled or smooth, green or yellow. Oh, so Darwin's ideas, they, they weren't fitting into genetic reality. And so he was really, really struggling. So, so this, um, this paper, why didn't Darwin discover Mendel's laws? He had more money than, than Mendel, more time than Mendel. He ran enough experiments. In fact, in one of his books, um, Variation of Plants and Animals Under Domestication, he wrote a table of a classic dihybrid cross where you have a three to one ratio in the offspring. Uh-huh. So if, if you have two individuals that, that are heterozygous, they carry a dominant mm -hmm. allele and a recessive allele. Mm -hmm. Hey, you people, listen, keep up. Keep now, keep up. Yeah. <laughs> we got to keep up with the science here. It's fun, though. Just imagine a Punnett square. You go back to ninth grade biology. <laughs> but if you, have, if you have two individuals that are heterozygous, well, some of the offspring will have two of the dominant alleles. Some of them have two of the recessive alleles. And most of them will have one of each. And because one is recessive, if you have one of each, you don't see the recessive trait and you get a three to one ratio of offspring. And what does that mean in practical application? It's just, that's just basic Mendel, Mendelian genetics. Okay. And just, that's the way genes work. Which totally contradicts the origin of species theory. Uh, yeah, it does. But worse than that, Darwin wrote this table of um, some, some plant. And if you look at the numbers, the offspring are in a three to one ratio. And he completely missed it. He wrote it down. He had the data right in front of him, but he didn't notice Mendel's laws. And that the author concludes because of his preconceptions. Yeah. Okay. He so wasn't because looking he for already that. was confident about the theory. Yeah. And he had this, this very odd view. Uh, do you know who Lamarck was? Mm, Lamarckian inheritance is the guy who, who oh, taught yeah. the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Right. That, you know, if I exercise my muscles, then I'm going to have children who are stronger. 
<laughs> yes. And I still know people who kind of sort of think it works that way. Oh, yeah. No, no. This is now nah. Lamarckian evolution was disproved when a guy took a bunch of rats generation after generation after generation and cut off their tails. <laughs> and the last generation, guess what? They had a perfectly long tails. <laughs> so, it, it, but Darwin was a Lamarckian. He believed it. He, he wrote things like, you know, sailors are naturally farsighted. And sightedness is one of the most inheritable characteristics. So they would naturally have children who are farsighted. But watchmakers are naturally nearsighted. <laughs> and therefore, their children would be naturally nearsighted. Wow. Now, there's nothing in there like, you know, if you were nearsighted, you would never be a watchmaker. No. Oh, no, sorry. It's the other way around. If you were farsighted, you would never be a watchmaker. Right. You'd be useless. Right. In fact, I'm farsighted. I have to wear glasses for anything up close. I could not <laughs> do your job on a laptop. No, it'd be impossible. Like even Paul, in one of his letters in, in the New Testament, he writes, see what large letters I write with my own hand. <laughs> the guy was 50s. He had myopia. He couldn't see anything small anymore. <laughs> so he wasn't even writing his letters. Other people were writing for him. <laughs> anyway, Darwin's idea that these things could be inherited. And, and he had this idea. It's called pangenesis. Pan-genesis. Pan means all. There's that word genesis. Genesis beginning. And that is that as your various organs in your body get exercised, little corpuscles would bud off and float somehow to your gonads. And these little corpuscles would be given to the next generation. Yeah. So, so that's why Arnold Schwarzenegger's children are all, you know, Mr. Universes today. <laughs> that's not true. Or why, you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you know, he didn't always look like that. No, it was true. a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work and his children aren't going to pop out, you know, that big. No, it would take a lot no. of work to get there. <sighs> so this idea of pangenesis is actually completely wrong, but this is what Darwin died believing. Wow. Lamarckian inheritance, which is really strange because, you know, today we have the neo-Darwinian revolution. We have Mendel's laws in, in, in biology today. And yet Lamarckism is coming back. Are you kidding me? For biological reasons. Oh, okay. Hold that thought. We need to touch on Darwin's finches, right? We do need to talk about Darwin's finches. This might actually come into play very quickly. When we realize that not all traits that are inherited are genetic. I'm assuming that he was introduced to these finches on the voyage of the Beagle. Yes. He was um, on, he went to the Galapagos Islands, famously. He collected a bunch of birds, but remember he's a geologist. Remember from last episode, He's a geologist at this point. He's not thinking about biology. He's actually collecting specimens to send back to London for other people to look at. Yeah, he's a seminary graduate geologist studying birds. <laughs> not studying birds at all. He's just collecting them, throwing oh, them in a okay. crate, and they get shipped back to England. When he's not splitting turtles. <clears throat> when he's not splitting turtles. Gross. <clears throat> anyway, when he does get back to England, the ornithologists at the, the British Museum are like, Hey, Darwin, did you realize that these are finches? No. Why would finches look like that? That guy's got a big fat beak. That's not a, oh, it is a finch. Okay. Darwin, what li what um, what island did you collect these from? Um, <laughs> why you ask me that? Well, because we would like to know where they came from. Uh, I didn't write down the name of the island. Huh. I just collected some birds. And then he writes, he writes in his own journal. Uh, I'll give you a quote here. It never occurred to me that the productions of islands only a few miles apart that's the species developing on islands and placed under the same physical conditions would be dissimilar. I so finches here with, you know, short 
peaks and yeah, these are volcanic steady. islands. They're close together. Yeah. They're in the same exact environment. Why would they be different species on these islands? Mm-hmm. So I therefore did not attempt to make a series of specimens from the separate islands. Well, that's highfalutin 1800s language for I didn't label my birds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Captain Fitzroy did. Captain Fitzroy the Christian. Captain Fitzroy, who died rejecting Darwin's ideas, he labeled the islands from which he collected his birds. And so the guys in London used Fitzroy's collection of birds to sort out Darwin's collection of birds so that we can call oh. them Darwin's finches. Oh, wow. Oh. Huh. So have you ever heard that um, Darwin invented the theory of evolution while on the Galapagos Islands? Did I say that last time? Yeah, it gets I around. Did. I it's, think I did. Yeah. It's well, most people are like, yeah, yeah, I heard that. I heard, you know, we hear that all the time in, in books, on, on websites, you know, any, any high school biology teacher. Oh, yeah, Darwin invented evolution while on Galapagos. That is flat out not true. Mm. Let me read you a, um, a quote from his Journal of Researches, 1845. Talking about the tortoises, those big tortoises on the islands. He goes, my attention was first called to this fact that the tortoises look different uh, by the vice governor, Mr. Lawson declaring the tortoises differed from the different islands and that he could with certainty tell from which island any one was brought. <sighs> I did not for some time pay sufficient attention to that statement. <laughs> In other words, I wasn't thinking evolution. <laughs> and I had already partially mingled together the collections from two of the islands. I never dreamed that islands about 50 or 60 miles apart and most of them inside of each other, formed of precisely the same rocks placed under this quite the similar climate, rising to nearly equal height, would have been differently tenanted. So he didn't, ex- <laughs> he didn't expect evolution to be happening. And when he said, I didn't sufficiently pay attention to that statement, this guy just told Darwin that there's different species of tortoises on the islands. And Darwin basically said, I didn't believe him. <laughs> it was decades later... When Darwin is trying to, you know, not only develop evolutionary theory, but establish himself as the author of evolutionary theory, where he's writing things to correct the record. And we actually see three different versions of the bird story at different periods of time. He revises it over time to sort of like make his claim a little stronger. And it, no, dude, he missed it. He completely wasn't thinking of it. It was later on when he's like, oh, I'm going to become the father of evolutionary biology and I'm going to kind of like try to pull the wool over people's eyes about these birds that I found. Oh, they call them Darwin's finches anyway. And there we have it. While we're talking about the myth then, was Darwin himself creating a yarn that he wanted everybody to believe that he was working on the theory of evolution and the origin of species on the Galapagos Islands? I'm not exactly sure where that came from, but his friends definitely tried to establish him as the originator of this. This is why Wallace got forgotten about. I mean, Wallace wrote a paper. Um, in fact, he, he said the inspiration came to him while in a, in a with a bout of malarial fever. So he's, oh, he's, he's down oh, in the South. That sounds like a great theory. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's interesting. But he's down in the South Pacific Islands and he's, traveling all over these really cool places, collecting all these really cool things, but he's poor. So what's he doing? He's sending them back to London and there's a guy in London who had a shop and he's selling them. That's how he's making his money. And he comes up with this, I mean, fully fledged Darwinian evolution theory. And he writes Darwin a letter and everyone goes crazy. All of his friends, that is. Oh no, here's a poor man 
who just trumped Darwin. And Darwin's been working on this for a couple of decades, but he's never been brave enough to say it out loud. And so what they did is they, um, they had a reading. They had Darwin really qu quickly write a letter, and they read these two letters at the same time in front of one of these uh, famous scientific societies. And then after that, they just completely forgot about Wallace. But how did Wallace go on after that? Did he come back dejected and frustrated and angry and wrote something about this published in another journal? No, no, I think, I think did he, he was, just joined the Darwin party. Uh, yeah, pretty much. He did write a few things that were complimentary to Darwin. So I don't know if he was bitter, but he also might've understood his place too, but he was a surveyor later on in life. Um, so he, he made his money doing surveying. He wasn't, you know, indigent or anything like that. Hmm. In fact, he actually did a famous experiment to disprove the flat earth idiots that were around in the late 1800s. Mm. And he did a surveying work. He says, nope, you're wrong. So, <laughs> See, he learned his lesson. <laughs> he yeah, was going to take charge of the situation now. <laughs> yeah, he may have, may have. But going, okay, going back to the question of what a species is, we have multiple definitions. Something that breeds true to type is a species. But Ernst Mayer, famous evolutionist from the 20th century, gave us what's called the biological species concept. That is, if two things can interbreed, they're the same species. Right. All the dogs can breed, yeah. for the most part, with yeah. all the other dogs. But what Meyer didn't realize what was coming later, that is like bird fanciers and fish people and people who take African cichlids that are all different species and hybridize them like crazy. Hmm. And they produce offspring that can also have children. And all hmm. these new verge varieties of African cichlids from aquarium people, that's not supposed to happen. These are supposed to be different, quote, species. So according right. to the biological species definition, essentially all the African cichlids, all those hundreds of species are one species. Whoa. And dogs and gray wolves and coyotes and red wolves and African jackals are all one species. Wow. And lions and tigers and cheetahs are all one species. Oh my. But they can breed with the smaller cats and they can breed with the smaller cats and they can breed with the smaller cats and they can breed with the house cats. <laughs> yeah, all the mountain lions and the cougars and the panthers and the jaguars. And the lynxes and the wildcats. There's all one gigantic chain of connectivity between all these different so-called species. Like can I jump in Even here? different genera even. So, so here's the thing, just as a childhood enthusiast, for woodland creatures, okay. enjoying the owls, the bears, the foxes, uh, turtles. I had a turtle for a while. I had a pet hamster. I had a purebred collie. Hmm. I just took for granted whatever the sciences may be and whatever the histories may be, that a lot of these animals were always with us in this form and always will be, unless they become endangered and extinct. So a barn not owl true. It's not and right. a screech owl and a snow owl, they are what they are and no one can change them. But what we were looking at is they are a, what did you call it earlier when we were talking about the pigeons? That is where you've narrowed down the genes to a type. Yeah, they're pigeonholed. They're you pigeon stripped holed. away all the genetic diversity. Now you have something that literally breeds true to type. That's only because it has no genetic diversity. Short-haired collies are pigeonholed. Yes, they are. Until they rebreed with a totally different type. Yeah, and then you have a mutt. Yeah. Who's probably superior to his, both of his parents because he probably doesn't have all his inbred recessive traits that are causing disease. And Yeah, he has a better combination and, of more genes than his yeah. parents had. Yeah. There's another definition of species, though, and that's in geology. See, I, I did not expect you to bring that up because 
geology is a bunch of not even ever living things. They're not dead things. They're just inanimate objects. Yeah, but remember, Darwin is a geologist when he's on the Galapagos Islands. Oh! And his views of geology are going to influence his views of biology later on. Did he believe in the evolution of rocks? Uh, no, of oh, okay. course not. But, but he'd be looking at things like trilobites and um, fish and dinosaurs and things. In the oh, fossil. this is where the fossils come in. And fossil record. But see, the problem is fossils are dead. Like you can't take all the ceratops of dinosaurs and do a cross-fertilization experiment to find out what the species barriers are. And because he wasn't thinking biblically, he wasn't thinking that maybe God created, you know, groups of animals with a rich diversity within each group that could later on be partitioned as it got pigeonholed into varieties and in, in what we call species. He wasn't thinking that way. He was thinking the other way. And so if you looked at, you know, uh, uh, something you find in the fossil record, well, over millions of years with lots of natural selection, this thing is going to be different than something else, like another trilobite with maybe a, a spiky eyeball instead of a round eyeball or something like that. Hmm. It would have taken millions of years to produce those differences. <laughs> Given everything we just talked about, we know that that's not true. Because we see radical changes very quickly in a lot of different species. Is this really funny to think that everything is possible with millions of years? <laughs> when we know from face value things that these happen overnight. Yeah, so everything Darwin saw can be explained in the creation context very easily. When you say the creation context, do you mean not evolution? Yeah, theory? not evolution. There's a uh, very famous uh, couple, uh, very nice people called Peter and Rosemary Grant. I've actually met them. They don't probably remember me. But when we were filming Darwin, The Voids That Shook the World, we asked them if we could do an interview. And they said, no, no, we're going to be on, on station already. But they have spent you know, over 30 years every summer on a little teeny island in the Galapagos Islands. In fact, flying into the, the main airport on the Galapagos, you look out and you see their island. It's, it, that know, is cool. And you know these yards people. wide, maybe. Well... When I was sitting in the plane in Guayaquil, ready to fly to the Galapagos. Guayaquil's a, a, a city in Ecuador. And you, you, you get on your plane there and you fly over to the Galapagos Islands, a couple hundred miles offshore. And the whole plane is full and there's two empty seats next to me. And the whole film crew is in the next row. I mean, the director, the sound guy, the helper guy, the, the video guy, they're, they're taking up the next row in front. I'm sitting by myself, a row behind them. And we're supposed to be taken off and we're delayed. We don't, no one knows why. And there's two empty seats next to me. And onto this plane steps this old couple in ratty clothing. And I said, man, if that doesn't look like a, you know, a college professor going out in the field, I don't know what you know, a college professor going out in the field would look like. So they sit down next to me. And I just mind my own business. I just happen to look over and this lady's holding her boarding pass for some strange reason. And her thumb is covering her name. And I'm just like, I wonder, is this the Grants? I wonder, I wonder. And so I'm sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. Finally, she moves her thumb and it says, Rosemary Grant. <laughs> and I turn and I look at her and I said, are you Rosemary Grant? She goes, why, well, yes, I am. I said, I am a huge fan of yours. And that was definitely true. She didn't know I was a creationist. She didn't realize a film crew was sitting in front of her. And so we start talking. And while we're talking, I, she turns around to her husband to ask him a question. And I pinned a little note on a piece of scrap paper. And I, and I threw it in front of me, all rolled up. <laughs> so the guy in front of me, who might have been the sound guy or the video guy, he unrolls it and he kind of like <laughs> looks around sideways at me and I, I kind of nodded at him and he whispers and then he, the guy whispered and finally the, 
the director of, of The Voyage Shook the World turns around and engages Peter. And so I'm talking to Rosemary, he's talking to Peter, and we got our interview. Wow. But they weren't in the movie. No. Because they never signed the release. Mm. Ah, so they thought something was up. And, yeah. And so they didn't sign the release, which is too bad. But we did interview them, and they're just delightful people. Yeah. Lovely people. I mean, wonderful, friendly. And as soon as the camera started rolling, it was like something changed, and they became professional Darwinists. Oh. And it's like Darwin, 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 Darwin. It's like, wow, what happened to the... It was really weird. But she actually told me something as we're taking off. She goes, oh, look out the windows. Yeah. She goes, do you see a big river? I said, yeah. She goes, that's a Guayaquil River. Okay. So I'd been to Guayaquil before. I knew I knew that at least. She goes, do you see any um, piles of leaves and, and sticks and things? I was like, yeah. She goes, well, those vegetation masks can sometimes get a mile across. Huh. And they float out to sea and they distribute all sorts of small animals and plants. They get around. They, they don't stay there. And I'm thinking to myself, well, thank you, Miss Rosemary, because that is the biblical model yeah. of how things get around the world after the flood. Yeah. And floating vegetation mats. Oh, wow. Anyway, so that was just a really fun anecdote. But these are wonderful scientists, very detail-oriented. And they've been on this little island for like 30 years. And every year they capture every bird and they tag it. And if they already has a tag, they don't have to do that. But they have all these, you know, 30 generations or more of birds. And they know all the species. They know the individual birds. But what they showed us, and they have a book called How and Why Species Multiply. Awesome book. And it's essentially a creationist book with evolutionary terminology. Okay. You couldn't see it, but I just gave Rob a look because I'm like, what? Yeah, he gave me a very surprised look. What they showed us is that species can form in one year. And species can disappear in one year by merging with another species. Does that mean that evolution can run slow and fast? That means that things can stay the same for a long time. And if the environment changes, things can change very quickly. Whoa, evolution is just full of possibilities. It's amazing, isn't it? Wow. Now you're being a little sarcastic. <laughs> but what they did was they were there long enough that they went through a El Nino, La Nina cycle. So they've been there through several very wet seasons, a couple years in a row, and a couple years in a row of very dry season. When Darwin was on the islands, he was on the islands during La Nina. Mm -hmm. This is a dry period. He was on desert islands. Hmm. If he came 10 years later, they would have been soaking wet and green. Huh. But he, you know, he didn't know there's environmental shifts and things like that. Yeah. And what they showed was that during the wet years, the birds hybridize like crazy. Okay. As in different species, yeah. what we thought were different species, they hybridize like crazy. But during a dry year, a lot of the intermediate birds get killed off. And the specialists are the ones that survive. So ones with the big beats that, that, that can take the Opuntia cactus and crack the seeds, they live. And maybe the little teeny beaks that can, you know, get things into little cracks and things the other birds could miss, maybe they'll live too. And the ones in the middle die out. Huh. But then when it starts raining again, boom, they become one species again. Oh. So what's a species, Mr. Darwin? He didn't look at it long enough. They also had a fascinating account. Here's something I learned from them, which I didn't know. But little baby birds, as they're growing up, they're listening to the bird song of the father. And so the little boy babies are going are gonna to sing like their father sang later on. And little girl babies are going to try to find a male who sings like the song that she heard growing up. Oh. Sometimes, if you have two nests close together, a female will grow up hearing the wrong species 
and she'll go and mate with the wrong oh, species. Oh, wow. That is so, wow. But they had another example where a bird from a different species, a bigger bird from a different species had flown in from another island. And he showed up on their island one year. What's he doing there? That species doesn't live here. Well, somehow he found a mate and they raised a the clutch of eggs. <laughs> and the little boys were listening to the father from a different island. And the little girls were listening to the father from a different island. And you know what? When the little girl birds grew up, they married their brothers. <laughs> and they raised clutches of eggs. And that next generation sang like the father bird from a different island, totally different species. And a brand new species appeared in one season. And that species was a hybrid between two other species. But they're different. They don't look like any other species. It's brand new so-called species. So what's a species? Yeah. So are we saying, are you saying that speciesism needs to be thrown out? There is really no such thing as species? Or is everything a species? What are we getting at? Because going back to the geology, we have rock species. Yeah, and rock species. I like that. And we don't, we can't breed them because they're dead. And they're, <laughs> a lot of them extinct. We don't know if they're real species or not. It's so. What I'm saying is, is that we've watered down the meaning of the word so much that there's there's no practical definition. Yeah, this is very true. It's absolutely 100% true. The word species means type in Latin. We don't have a definition of that word in biology. Wow. Because we can't find any concrete examples that, that hold. There's a, an article in um, Science back in 2016 called, you used a phrase a minute ago, shaking up the tree of life. Yeah. And this is a summary of a lot of new discoveries where they're finding massive amounts of hybridization between what they thought were different species. And the cover image was two different butterflies that look totally different and they're copulating on the wow. cover of Science magazine. Whoa. Because they are one kind, one kind. That's the creationist uses this phrase called the created kind. The Bible uses the phrase kind. It doesn't use the word species. But it, for all practical purposes, like you said, yeah, species basically means type and type basically means kind. Basically. So all the cats have a certain cat likeness. They're all there. You can all, you know, you can look at a lion, you can look at a house cat and you can say, okay, these are cats and these are different than dogs. Well, there's some little teeny fuzzy dogs that almost look cat-like and they're very disturbing, but we don't talk about them. If you actually looked at them and you looked at them in the mouth and you, you know, they were a dog if you knew what you're looking at, but uh, good point. Um, so all dogs have a dogness, all cats have a catness. That is probably reflecting God's original created kind. Yeah. Where if he created different groups of animals. And within each group, there's a lot of genetic diversity, a lot of potential for speciation, a lot of potential for change over time. That explains all of Darwin's evidences. Right. And so there's a problem we have, and that is that Darwin is arguing all of these things that the creationists agree with, and yet we're not Darwinists. Okay. So I don't believe in evolution, but I certainly believe in change over time. I certainly believe in speciation. I certainly believe in just about everything Darwin wrote about, except his extrapolations to infinity. He's, you know, he's doing all these observations. I see the same observations. This is true. Things change over time. But it's because they're changing from an original creation, an original created type, and being pigeonholed and more fine-tuned to a specific environment, like, like a polar bear. Yeah, so there was an original created bear type. Yeah. That was the uh, mama bear and papa bear for all the variety that we see several, several thousands of years later. That's right. And there's a whole bunch of bear species today. Because the grizzly bear is pigeonholed, the honey bear is pigeonholed, the panda bear. Mm. Uh, yeah, and we don't know. I, I can't put panda bears in with the other bears quite yet because they are different. They're different, well, different. They, they might not be. I don't know. 
Because, you know, taxonomy and biology and genetics, we're still exploring things like the foxes. Yeah. Are foxes dogs or not? It is important to remember that all this stuff is fairly recent science. Yeah, a lot of recent science in this because we didn't. And it's going to take time because you can produce several generations of dogs in a shorter window of time than you could produce multiple generations of bears, I would reckon. Uh, yeah, because bears really aren't lab rats. No. They, they, don't, they don't really take to, you know, being put in a kennel and things like that. So, but there is a scientist. You don't want to cut off their tails. <laughs> no. <laughs> there, there is a scientist, was a scientist, or at least he was a fox breeder in the Soviet Union. During all those years of darkness where the Soviet Union was cut off from the rest of the world. This sounds like the beginning of a sci-fi slash thriller. Well, yeah, not, not quite. You can buy these foxes today. He, he domesticated them. <gasps> I want one. Oh, I want. They're so beautiful. They're really so cute. What he did was generation after generation after generation, he picked the most docile foxes. They pant with their tongues hanging out. Their ears get floppy. Their tails curl. They got little white spots in the end of their tail. They got a little white spot on their chest. A lot of dogs have. My dog growing up is a black dog and a little white spot on his chest. Oh, yeah. They act like dogs. But look like foxes. But they're foxes. Oh. So the domestication process dogified a fox so foxes really do look like dogs but if they're dogs they split off from dogs right after dogs came off noah's ark that's my biggest guess i'm not sure but they're very dog like hmm. interesting but you know even though most of the world accepted darwinism very quickly there are a lot of scientists who did not in fact the religious establishment accepted it more than the scientists did that is odd. Why would they do that? Well, because there's provincialism in science and there's opinion and there's groups of people and they're fighting over money and things like that. And because some scientists can think. Then why? Okay. So then the religious, why would the religious even be interested in science, Rob? I mean, separation of church and science, right? Yeah. Why, why, why do we even talk about science when we talk about religion? Because religion makes claims about history and science makes claims about history and therefore, one of them is right, or one of them's wrong, or you can blend them together. Mm. And so there's this, you know, ancient, ancient fight between the two things. In fact, a lot of the times, the people doing the science are the people who are doing the religion. Well, then the easiest thing to do, the most practical thing to do, is to change a religions to conform to science. Well, and that's exactly what happened in the 1800s across most of Christianity. So all they needed to do was uh, get out the whiteout and uh, mark up their uh, Bibles. And you just skip over those first books. couple of chapters and everything's okay, right? Yeah. yeah. Especially the book of Genesis. We're going to relabel it the book of Pan-Genesis. Yeah, it, um, it doesn't quite work that way, so we keep arguing. But people wrote Darwin some excoriating letters. Remember Sedgwick from the last episode? The famous yes. geologist who gave us the, um, the Cambrian era, the, you know, the part where in Earth's history where multicellular life was supposedly first evolving. Well, Sedwick writes a letter to Darwin a month after the origin is published. This is one of Darwin's mentors. And he writes, I've read your book with more pain than pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Parts I read with absolute sorrow because I think them utterly false and grievously mischievous. You have deserted the true method of induction. <laughs> okay. And now he, in this part of his letter, he's talking about, is there a spirit inside of us or are we just a machine? And he's counting on Charles for saying that they're that we're just machines. Well, that's what Darwin seems to be indicating. And later on, he absolutely, absolutely says it. But I don't know if you're familiar with the um, the police album from the 80s. Yeah. Ghost and Machine. Yeah. 
We are spirits in the material. Our yeah. spirits. Yeah. Okay. That is talking about is there a ghost in the machine? Classical philosophical argument, or are we just a machine? Well, this is what um, Sedgwick writes. Were it possible, which thank God it is not, to break it, and by it he means the link between the physical and the spiritual. Were it possible, which thank God it is not, to break it, humanity in my mind would suffer a damage that might brutalize it and sink the human race into a lower grade of degradation than any into which it's fallen since his written records tell us of its history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if we're just machines... What Sedgwick did, he just predicted the history of the first half of the 20th century. Yeah, and we deconstruct everything for thousands of years. That's of right. Culture. Yes. And well, that not only that, there wouldn't be any moral check. If we're just machines, then people have no net worth. Mm-hmm. So when Stalin went to bed at night, knowing he had just written an order that would result in the death of 30,000 people, he could sleep just fine because killing 30,000 people was no different than cutting the grass. Right. In the Darwinian mindset, when you apply it that way, and Sedwick, he knew what was coming. But Darwin, he just wrote uh, some things in his um, in his journal. Have you ever heard that Darwin recanted on his deathbed? Well, that comes up all the time. All the time. It's totally false. It's an urban myth. Yeah. But we do have a letter from a woman. Um, she was a, um, a known evangelist in the 1800s. Her name was Lady Hope. <laughs> and in this letter, um, it claims that she visited Darwin on his deathbed, and it was in the fall of the year. Uh, uh, Darwin died in the spring. <clears throat> and that, and remember Darwin, the agoraphobic, yeah. who never entertained strangers? To his dying day. And this woman who he didn't even know said he went and visited him and talked to him. Oh, yeah. wow. And plus, and, and she said that he recanted. But we Why ha- would she make up this story? We don't know. I don't even know if the, the letter's original or not. I don't know. Might be wishful thinking. He might, she might have met him, and she, he might have said something, some platitude or something. And oh, I know Darwin's going to be in heaven. Oh, you know, but there's just factual errors in this thing. Plus, we have all of his letters up to the day he died, wow. writing to other people, other people writing to him. There's not a shred of evidence that he changed his mind. In his autobiography, he writes, "Thus disbelief crept over me at a very slow rate, but was at last complete. The rate was so slow that I felt no distress." And have never since doubted, even for a second, that my conclusion was correct. I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all of my friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is damnable doctrine. Wow. Well, Mr. Darwin, first of all, you have no right to use that word because you have no definition of that word. And how dare you say Christianity is damnable? Mm. This is, you know, basic Christian doctrine is those who don't believe are going to go to hell. And this is abhorrent to him. And then he writes this also. A man who has no assured and ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or future existence with retribution and reward, meaning heaven and hell, can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow his impulses and instincts, which are the strongest or which seem to him the best ones. That's called hedonism. So he's adopting another philosophy Another belief. He is adopting something that is kind of baseless. It's completely baseless. It's do what, whatever seems strongest or best to you, do it. Okay, now look at you know Western society in the year 2020. And what do we see? We see just the strict application of Darwinian philosophy to our society. And we see hedonism. Yeah. People doing whatever they want to do. Not really checks on morality necessarily. Now, it's not like, you know, murder is not acceptable today, but it For was. For the most part, people don't want to murder. But that's right. If they do, they do. 
but murder was certainly acceptable in communist Russia, yeah, Nazi Germany, communist China, Genghis Khan's day. If a society or an individual could make the rules up for themselves, what's going to prevent them from doing that? And we see so many examples of that. No, we're we're advanced people. We're we're better than people. No, we're not actually, because in a Darwinian mindset, we're just animals. Yeah. So in a nutshell, what we're basically saying is, without a spirit, with no created spirit, there is no God. There is no authority. There is no authority that decided what morality ought to be. So if everything is a machine or an inanimate object, then who makes up the rules and why? There is only material. There's just no basis for philosophy of any type or any belief. It is amazing how Darwinism intrudes itself into so many different things. Religion, philosophy, science, even our understanding of reality. Yeah, because we're just, we're just material. And then if you want to get spiritual, you do that on your own time because it makes you feel good. But it doesn't really have any consequence because it's not real. It is art. It is imagination gone wild. If you believe in God, it's because you have inherited a broken gene that you got from your fish and monkey ancestors that helped them have babies. Yeah. That's essentially what they believe. We're just a chemical manufacturing machine. So I know we don't want to leave everyone on a very vexing, disturbing note, but we are out of time for this week. So we're probably going to turn this into an episode about what the 21st century science and where we are today and ways that we can get out of this paper bag. We, we will come back to this issue. <laughs> I am certain of it. Well, but there's loads of other topics. We're not always going to be talking about evolution and uh, origins of species, but it is a very important topic that covers a lot of science. Rob, I think this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for breaking this down. It helps me to wrap my mind around the overview and be able to discuss this with others in a relevant way. And that is something that I think everybody who's listening to this podcast can really appreciate is even if you're not interested in science, science and getting down into the weeds, we've got people like Rob to help you digest it and come away with things that you can definitely discuss with your friends. So Rob, Thank you so much for joining me and making this a very interesting quest. If you have enjoyed listening, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and family. People that aren't usually interested in science topics are interested in this show, so it never hurts to tell a friend that can expand their horizons listening to Equinox. If you want to dig deeper into this episode's topics, you can find links to articles and the like in the show notes for this episode on our website. So hop over to nightowl.fm slash equinox slash six. And be sure to follow Dr. Carter's Facebook page and his YouTube channel, Biblical Genetics. His website is launched. It's biblicalgenetics.com. It is under more construction, but you can get to his videos there as well. And you can reach uh, Dr. Carter. He is at Bible Genetics on Twitter. You can find me there as well. My handle is at JCS Darnell. And until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. Thank you for listening to Equinox. 